guys, today I've got a quite serious episode and I actually don't know how I'm going to start this podcast. I, I don't know what to say. I don't know how words can really be said, but I'm joined by Nin and she is an incredible woman and reached out to me and she's going to share her experience today about experiencing SIDS. October is actually... SIDS Awareness Month so I thought it would be really really fitting to release it in October but without me rambling on I'm gonna introduce Nin to the podcast so hello Nin and welcome. Hi thank you for having me. Thank you so much and like thank you as well for reaching out and you saying you know I'm going to share my story because I'm sure like many women that have gone through this and their partners aren't open about their experiences because you know it's it's traumatic like I haven't I haven't even got a child or anything like that but I can't imagine the pain that you carry even still so I want to just ask you first and foremost how are you doing today yeah I'm pretty good um I've had a bit of a chaotic day um <laughs> my littlest one hurt himself today and the whole day's just got up in the air but yeah on the whole we're doing pretty good oh well that I mean it's a positive that you're all doing good I hope your little one's all right so I mean <laughs> I'm sending I'm sending my best but before we get into like the nitty-gritty of the podcast I was just wondering if you could just let me know a little bit about your childhood like let's go back to the start I was a really quiet kid I was basically mute and it's weird I see so much of myself in a couple in my children as well yeah I was, I was really quiet and then with many when I got to secondary school things started happening so there was the breakdown of my parents relationship and that led to me having obsessive compulsive disorder on hindsight that was there right from the beginning I remember I don't, I don't remember ever not having it really um, yeah it's, I think it's just how my brain works but it just really, really reached a reached a point of just exploding when my parents' relationship broke down. It's always been mainly about like numbers and rituals, but when when my dad left the family home, it became more about safety. So I'd go around the house checking. I don't know what I was checking for, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'd be like looking under chairs and plugs. Plugs were like my own personal hell, and they'd all have to be off. And I remember having arguments with my mum because the fridge needed to be off oh um, no. Like, well, no no it really can't but yeah I'd go around I'd, I'd, at the worst of it I'd go around for about an hour repeatedly checking the house I had a whole routine to check the house at night and it had to be checked and I'd stay up until probably three four in the morning when I was a teenager going back downstairs just suddenly have these intrusive thoughts about like the oven or something like that has it gotten better yeah. as you've gotten older yes okay that's good yeah. So in terms of like what you do now, do you still have like a sort of strict ritual that you do every single day before bed and things like that? Nowhere near what it was. I don't struggle with it to the extent I did at all. Um, And I never thought I'd be free from it. I had therapy. um, I've been medicated for it. And actually, after the loss of my daughter, it seemed so minimal compared to everything else that I was dealing with it kind of just became part of the day-to-day. And then when I had the kids, those rituals were actually... So I've tried to translate them into other things. So now my ritual before I go to bed is making sure the dishwasher has to be on, the washing machine has to be on, the tumble dryer has to be on. 
which, you know, 14-year-old me would probably scream at all those electrical things being on, actually. <laughs> um, but I think I've just I've just translated it into making another routine. I still go down in the night sometimes and I get really obsessive about like doors and stuff like that and checking the doors a lot. The air fryer, I don't know why that gets me. <laughs> I have constant thoughts about it being on and like hearing noises in the night but on the whole it's so much better than it ever has been it shows growth as well do you know what I mean like when you reflect back on stuff like that it's like you've come really really far in terms of your mental health journey in terms of like the you know it's OCD is is that mm. would that be the correct term in terms yeah. of your OCD and that's something that you should really really be proud of because for a lot of people they really really struggle to move past that and you said you were on medication and things like that like has the dosage and stuff gone down so like you're not medicated for it anymore I was medicated from about the age of 18 um until I had my first child and then after she died I decided not to go back on medication I weaned it down myself with no advice from anybody because to be honest nobody was overly being helpful or monitoring what I was doing which is concerning in itself so I weaned I weaned it down and then I didn't want to go back on it I was breastfeeding my children I've, I've breastfed for a long time so I had my second daughter 10 months after my do- my first daughter died I breastfed her and then I was breastfeeding until May this year. So that's from 2016 until May this year with my fourth child. Some would call me a hippie. <laughs> but yeah, when when I was on when I was breastfeeding, I never wanted to be on medication. It was just something I felt really strongly about. Not from not from like a health perspective per se, because I did a I did a pharmacology degree. I feel comfortable with the science behind it. It's just from a grief perspective. I was on them when I was pregnant with my daughter and when I was breastfeeding her and then she died. So it felt like a mental block for me. That was something I just couldn't do. So I've not been medicated since then. Um, I've been strongly advised to be since when I was dealing with men- with postnatal depression and they've been very determined in pushing that and no one's really listened to that boundary that I've put in place. It's your body at the end of the day. It's like up to you what you want to put in it. Mm-hmm. And I actually fully respect your decision in not wanting to put medication into you if you don't feel like it's necessary. Like there's other ways of dealing with things as well. And if you found a way of dealing with it without taking meds, then that's amazing. And like something that more people should maybe do and I don't know how to like word stuff like this because I know it's a really sort of touchy sort of topic but when you had your second third and fourth in the Mm. back of your mind did you always think like this could happen to them do you know what I mean yeah absolutely it was I think you know, the most scary thing that's ever happened in my life is my daughter dying. But the second most scary thing I've ever done in my life is having another child after that. Because the your whole world changes. Like that the eyes you look at the world with completely change because what was once a cute little baby isn't it feels like a ticking time bomb. Yeah. Um my second daughter came along and to be honest, Bear, my first daughter beautiful first baby (laughs) she breastfed completely easily the birth though long was great pregnancy brilliant complete unicorn baby she was lovely (laughs) 
<laughs> and then my second child comes came along and I, I always say second children are completely feral um I refer everybody who knows me in real life knows me I refer, I refer to her as the most feral child um and she still is and uh, we always say that she was born with the energy of two children but she came out screaming and I think she proceeded to scream for about the first six hours of her life she had fluid on her lungs and went to the neonatal unit because she was born slightly early and I wasn't expecting that I just thought that she'd be born and we'd try and establish breastfeeding and it would be scary but we'd go home and I think the thing that threw me through the loop when she was born was the week stay in neonatal um she was treated for sepsis and it was very very scary and it completely, um, anything I could have prepared for that experience, it just completely, it scared me, it scarred me. And I struggled to bond with her. And that is what it booted off the postnatal depression. Really? So you unfortunately lost your first child and then for your second child, you suffered with postnatal depression. When you had your second, third and fourth, did you also suffer with postnatal depression as well? And do you think there could be a link there between there? Yes, absolutely. I, so I suffered from postnatal depression with all three of my, um, we call them rainbow babies. No. Um, and not everybody in the lost community calls them rainbow babies, but it's a term I like to use just because losing bear was like a storm, to so to say, and you know they're the bright and colourful thing that's like hopeful that came after it and yeah I did have postnatal depression with all three of them whether I realised it at the time was a different thing entirely so with, we we refer to the children with nicknames so we don't use their real names online so my eldest we call Bear my first rainbow we call Bunny my third child we call Cub and the littlest one we call Pud and with all of them so with Bunny I was adamant I did not have postnatal depression um, I feel like every health visitor that came into my house was looking at me like, oh, OK, of course you don't. Um, and it took until she was about six months old. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, my goodness, I am not OK. But still, the response I got, I don't overly think was helpful. Yeah. I got sent to a support group with other mums who had postnatal depression. But there were other mums who had postnatal depression who were all first time mums and found my story scary yeah uh, I don't I and whilst I am I'm still friends with some of them to this day I don't think any of the people in that group the people who were leading that group or anything like that were equipped to deal with my situation well you weren't equipped to deal with your situation I don't no. think, I don't think anything can prepare you that for that situation like you know that child has been a part of you inside you for like you know nine months and I was actually born at six months so I always like in my head I'm like yeah. a child's in you for six months and it's just completely wrong but on average <laughs> a child is inside you for nine months you know you you build you build this bond and like that bond is absolutely unbreakable like there's nothing like the bond that a mother will have with a their daughter or their son or what have you do you know what I mean in terms of like what postnatal depression is can you sort of explain that feeling to me somebody who like has never experienced that yeah, yeah so before I had children I like the media portrays postnatal depression as you have a baby 
and you feel a bit sad <laughs> and that's basically the limit of it and you know all I've seen of it in the media is mainly in fiction and after a few episodes whatever it is I'm watching they're great and I think also in, you know in terms of like the care I've received from the NHS the general consensus is after the baby turns one that postnatal depression should be gone and that's not really the case so with I think my my most memorable experience and noticeable feeling of it just it felt like it was like a blanket of it falling over me is I had my youngest child. He's an OG pandemic baby. He was born on the 16th of March. So I li- he was li- he literally popped out of me and then Boris announced lockdown. Oh no. It was like, because he, he was a Nikki baby as well. So hours after we got home, it was like lockdown. Poor child did not leave the house until he was about one. And it was almost, I remember coming into the house. I'd, he had the same issues as my second child. I'd gone through that whole NICU journey completely alone because my husband couldn't come to the hospital. He was at home with the other two children. It had been so different and I'd remained really strong and determined to get through it. And I was really proud of myself. And I remember it starting to slip and I walked into the house and everything looked different. And this is now what I recognise as, you know, maybe a small episode of psychosis. I walked into the house, everything looked different. My children didn't look like my children. They didn't, they, they, it sounds really weird, but mums smell everything. They didn't smell right. My husband didn't look like my husband. It almost, it felt like everything was slightly off. And I remember walking into this house and the only thing that looked right was me and this little baby that had just come out of me. And it felt like I walked into my living room. I got into the armchair with him. And that was like my safe bubble. And everything outside of that was terrifying. And it, it feels almost primal like everything feels like a massive threat and the the pandemic made it even worse but even like my older children it felt like everything had to be directed towards the baby and that he was you know he was pretty much glued to me 24 7 as well and kind of as time went on it's just it's just like this kind of darkness that overcame me almost I felt so protective of him it's, it's like the most weird, dark mummy, mama bear mode that I experienced. I felt so protective over him and hyper-focused on his feeding and his health, which obviously probably stems from Bear. Was Bear's health like completely normal? Like there was no problems there at all? She had interuterine growth restriction. She was a lot smaller than my other babies. We don't know whether that would play into it. Nothing was ever diagnosed post-mortem wise and it was just ruled as SIDS but we don't know if there was an underlying condition at all because there's a lot you kind of can't really tell it made everything very scary because we had our next baby and she was she was big (laughs) um and it was completely we we expected her to be tiny like her sister and she was she was big she was about three pounds heavier than her sister was and then my next baby he was big he was an absolute tank and then every time by the time I got to the fourth one I was like oh god what if he's small and was going if he's small something's going to go wrong um was he small yes no no I've I've bred absolute giants (laughs) (laughs) oh that's 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 put a smile on my face <laughs> Bless. and can I just ask like a question so yeah. how old were you when you had bad I was 22 22 yeah that's my was... age right now and I, yeah and I could never imagine going through that like 
at all, especially right now. It's, it's weird because I don't think anything can prepare anybody to be a mum. Like, there's all of this sort of, like, you know, chat online and books out there and stuff like that. But, like, everybody's experience is their own experience. So, like, your experiences are going to be different to, like, somebody else's, somebody else's. And the loop just sort of continues. How is it still affecting you now? So, I think people kind of talk about grief being like you know the whole acceptance thing yeah so i can't remember remember what they say about it but there's seven seven stages of grief and i think that is absolute twaddle because if there are seven stages in grief i ping around them all (laughs) by by the day by the moment i was speaking to somebody at an event um that i was doing the other day and he does a charity for his daughter who died i think it was nine years ago and I was, I, we said, we were saying that acceptance is accepting that you are never going to get over this. And it's always going to feel a little bit rubbish. It's always going to be right there in the back of your mind and that they're always going to be a part of your life. So day to day now, like in the very beginning, I was an, I was wrecked. Yeah. I, I cannot possibly describe what those early days are like. It's impossible. I would never want to live through that again. I don't envy anyone who is going through it. And it it breaks my heart to think that it is still happening to people now. Online, it says about 200 unexplained infant deaths. That's in the UK anyway. So I wonder what it is worldwide. And sorry, go back to what you were saying about the acceptance. I went to a support group after Bear died by the charity Sands. And one of the analogies they use there was the the rock. Um, and it's that when your child first dies, your grief is like this giant boulder. And the way I like to think of it is as as the years go by and as you kind of, you know, go to therapy, not that I think that's essential, you know, you as you kind of build that circle of people who you can safely grieve with and find your outlet, you learn to carry that rock. It doesn't get smaller you learn to carry it and on some days it is still heavy it still absolutely crushes you and on some days you are juggling that rock you know but it never goes away it's always there you are always carrying that and I think that's what's misunderstood I've heard so many times directly indirectly aren't you over that yet you know I could think of a whole bingo board of inappropriate things I've heard in relation to grief it's almost kind of for me a lot of um, what acceptance has been is accepting that those sorts of things those sorts of judgments are going to come my way and that fueled a lot of my postnatal depression for a long time was feeling misunderstood and feeling entirely alone and that I think a lot of that was me grieving to the expectations of others a massive turning point for me has been going you know what I am grieving to my expectations I'm living to my expectations and that's been the hugest of turning points in my postnatal depression is go- is looking at it and going, you know, do I need to have these people in my life if they're causing those feelings, if they're judging my actions, you know, if they can't embrace Bear in my life in the way I have her and like drawing those lines in the sand. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know, these people who speak to you in this way or don't understand what you're going through and I think when I say like don't understand like nobody will be able to understand what you're going through unless they've experienced themselves but it's to help you through this 
journey that you're going through because it's not something that will get better with a click of the fingers and like I've looked at the seven stages of grief and like the fact that like that that's like a set list so this is how you should be feeling and when you've done all of this you should be fine like it doesn't work like that like at all and like in what way are you celebrating bearing your life now like what do you do I always say she is the gobbiest of our children <laughs> because she still manages to have such an effect on our day-to-day. -day. And it's even the smallest of things. So looking out in the garden and seeing a robin or something like that, doing something silly and sitting on top of the swing um, and just sharing that with the kids or to bigger things like going to baby loss events. We've got a massive community of friends who've also lost children and we've, we've made friends with these people through charities and through sharing on Instagram and stuff like that and going and doing things with them and celebrating the kids. So like for the wave of light um, in recent years, we've gone to the park, we've lit candles for the kids. We've written their names all the way through the park to confuse the dog walkers in the morning <laughs> um, and just doing things like that as a community surrounded by people who have walked in those shoes has been really really lovely too it's a brilliant way of remembering her what is your business so when she died I was a biochemist and she clearly just didn't think much of that because I'm now an illustrator I started drawing her after she died immediately as soon as we got home I was like oh, I need a sketchbook and my my like instinct was to just go and get a load of pencils and doodle my way through however on earth I was feeling and I've still got those drawings and I started painting her with our family and it occurred to me that I have the ability to do this but other people don't so I started in the, I think it was around the time I had my third child I started sharing them on Instagram painting other families um, other bereaved families and now I do it for everyone my main life work is custom illustrations but what I'm doing to celebrate her, hopefully, I'm doing a picture book illustration course at the minute. And I'm hoping to make a line of picture books for bereaved siblings. Oh, that's actually like, that's so wholesome in like, in a weird way, because like, it's so awful that you went through what you went through, but the fact that like you used it in a positive way and it yeah. made me giggle when you said that she's the gobbiest of all your kid children. <laughs> I just, I was just like, oh my gosh, there's always one. <laughs> she is an absolute and complete force of nature. Oh, bless her. Do you mind if I put the link in the Spotify description box and actually in all of the platforms that this goes out on so people can come find your Instagram and stuff and if they've ever experienced something they could get in touch yeah absolutely amazing thank you and I have I have maybe two more questions now and the first one and I'm trying to word it in a way that I don't want to upset you but like I I'm just going to ask anyway if that's okay absolutely just fire away because I'm I'm hardy to this stuff I, there's no way you can phrase things that's gonna like bother me so just go for it thank you so how have you told your children that there is their sister but she's not in person right now so I think it's sort of like I think it's sort of envisioned that one day I'd like sit them down and be like right guys you're old enough now you've got a dead sister but it's not been like that at all. So 
when we had Bunny, I had this big canvas picture of her sister up in the living room. And it's never been something we've hid. So like whenever she saw the picture, I'd say, oh, that's Lily, that's your big sister. So they've grown up with it always normal that the kid in the picture is their big sister. And kind of as they've grown, we've just kind of added those sort of age-appropriate details. So my seven-year-old daughter, she's quite like emotionally mature. Um, she's very familiar with it all. She's kind of hit that point. I think four is like the age where they suddenly start to ask all the questions. They realise mortality is a thing and their sister is not on this mortal coil and like every question just pops out of them. I think the scariest part for me is explaining how she died and that's not really come up yet. So I, I always say to them when they ask um, and they say, you know, why did she die? What happened? I'll, ju- I'll always just say her her body stopped working and she died. And we use, there's something called the physicist eulogy. Um, and that's something we found after she died that brought us a, little, a lot of comfort and we use it for the children. And it says, because I'm quite a sciencey person, it says um, that her energy, now, you know, her body was recycled, for want of a better word, and now the energy that was in her body is returned to the earth. No. And I, I kind of explained it to them in terms of, it sounds really geeky, but the carbon and nitrogen cycle. So we, we, we just kind of talk about how the body breaks down and the carbon, the nitrogen, all of the organic elements in their body, um, luckily I've got little geeks, returns to the earth to make new things. So, I, and basically they take that as she is everywhere. And there's kind of, there's a spiritualness to it as well. So they see me and my husband talking about like, oh, we've, we, we always say when we're driving and we see a really pretty sky, we'll say, oh, that's that's your sister doing some painting, um, something like that. So there is that kind of still that spiritualness to it. But when they say, oh, is she really doing some painting? I'll say, no, I don't know what she's really doing because I don't know what to believe. You know, you can decide what to believe yourself. I like to, I say them I like to believe that her energy's out there somewhere. Maybe what we're seeing is a coincidence, maybe what it's not, but the important thing is that makes us think of her. And as long as we're thinking of her, her memory's still around. It brings them comfort. I know my my daughter really feels a strong connection to her sister. I have I've had some backlash definitely from kind of having that openness with them. And I know it's what it's not what everyone chooses to do and my my opinion on it is each to their own, you know, do what you want to do. But I'm happy to be very open with them. And I think she's got a really, really valuable bond with her sister. Oh, that's so sweet. And like, it's, I actually, I praise you for not keeping it a secret because they maybe when they're older, they'd be like, why didn't you tell me? So it's like one of those things like, you can't really win, you know what I mean? And like, it's your family. It's like, what you decide to do in that sort of bubble and like anybody else's opinion means nilch do you know what I mean because it's yours and I actually really really admire you for that and it's really really sweet like I love looking up at the sky and like next time I look up the sky I'll be thinking of bear now as you've painted that image in my head and my last question would be and I again even if you don't have advice, like that's fine. But what advice would you give another mother or, or father or 
anybody sort of going through this when they're in that dark, dark time? I would say to them um, to grieve to your needs, grieve to your own expectations, grieve to your own needs and don't take what anyone else says as what you need to do because you know yourself, you know your child. You know, ultimately, I think in that very first raw year or two where it just feels like you're in a com- on a completely new earth, follow what they're guiding you to do. Yeah. You know, even if you're not a spiritual person, if you're not whatever you believe, like you can, I, I always say chase the moments that are full of them. No, that's just... So whatever makes you feel that connection, chase those moments and you won't go too far wrong because they'll lead you to like what you need to do. They'll lead, they'll lead you to that path of what will feel, like what will soothe your soul almost in those really raw days. That's actually a really, really great piece of advice. And I think it's a really, really great place to end it there. And I think you've given, you know, great sort of like information to like other women and anybody else experiencing this, like by sharing your story and raising awareness. Like SIDS isn't something that actually many people go through. So like trying to find that sort of, community within um the sort of world that have gone through this might be quite difficult but i'm really really proud of you for sharing your story so thank you so much yeah thank you so much for having me it's been really nice to just kind of talk and share her story and hopefully you know maybe help someone else out there who's going through the same thing absolutely and her memory will definitely live on every single one of the listeners will have um bear in their mind somewhere and honestly when i look up at the sky next time i know what i'll be thinking so thank you so much for coming on the podcast and i'll speak to you very soon and thank you to the listeners as well for sticking around thank you so much thank you bye